Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen southeast hyphen Asia hyphen centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institution for policy-relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email gai at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Michael Walzer once began a book with advice from a former teacher to always begin negatively. Tell your readers what you're not going to do and it will relieve their minds, he says. Then they will be more inclined to accept what seems a modest project. Whether or not Ward Keeler had this writing strategy in mind when he wrote the preface to The Traffic in Hierarchy, Masculinity and Its Others in Buddhist Burma, published in 2017 by the University of Hawaii Press, it's the one he adopts and with the recommended effect. Anticipating that the reader picking up a book on Burma with both hierarchy and masculinity in its title might be looking for answers to the question of how and why military men dominated the country for so long, he advises the reader that he leaves it to them to speculate as to how such notions as the workings of hierarchy or the location of power encouraged members of the former regime to impose control over the nation's populace with such ferocious complacency. To this he adds that it is to matters closer to the ground that he wishes to direct readers' gaze, since his own concerns are more immediate and pedestrian. Except, of course, that they're much more than that, for as the reader of The Traffic in Hierarchy turns the pages, they're led through deceptively straightforward descriptions of both street and monastic life and into a theory of hierarchy and a study of masculinity that is at once in conversation with Keeler's many interlocutors in Burma and with classics in anthropological inquiry. And this really is a rich and tremendously rewarding book, and it's my pleasure to be speaking today with its author, Ward Keeler, a professor of anthropology at the University of Texas at Austin. He's speaking with me, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow at the Australian National University and co-host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Ward, congratulations on the book, on your full professorship, and thanks for being our first return interviewee on the channel. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's truly a pleasure. I enjoyed our first encounters, so I've been looking forward to the second one for a while. And likewise, you may be the only person we haven't scared off coming back. <laughs> and 
possibly the only advantage for you as a returnee to the channel is that we already have an introduction to you in our last interview. So for that reason, and as we have so much to discuss, I'm going to dispense with the usual questions that get at your interests and motivation for writing the book and go straight back into where I left off the introduction with the preface of the traffic in hierarchy. And there, with your disavowals that politics or the political are to be found in this book, even though it's a book about power and hierarchy in contemporary Burma. So why did you want to emphasize this point at the get-go? And if power and hierarchy in Buddhist Burma are not about politics or the political or not only about them, then what are they about? Let me say that I have been rather disturbed to see in recent anthropology in the past few decades an increasing preoccupation with politics, often at, if not a national level, at least at a rather high order of magnitude, such that the implication is that, of course, everybody spends all of their time thinking about politics and power in the political science sense. And, of course, a lot of us academics are very concerned with these things in our own societies as well as in the societies we study, especially since anthropology and other social sciences have been very deeply affected by the work of Michel Foucault. All of that seems to me quite right. There was a problem in anthropology, especially in the U.S., prior to, say, the 70s, when there was far too little attention paid to politics. But the reaction going the other direction, I think, has been exaggerated. And it begins to seem like if the people we talk to in the societies we do our research in, don't talk to us about politics, then we're going to talk about politics anyway. And I find that distorting. So I wanted to say that in light of all of the political changes that have been taking place in Burma, well, especially since the the transition from military dictatorship to something like a civilian democracy, of course, people are terribly interested in what's going on about all that. But that's not my focus of attention. So I wanted to make sure that people didn't think this was going to be a book about the political transition. In a review of your book, Patrick McCormick suggests that your interests are informed by two interconnected ideas, hierarchy as a principle for organizing society and autonomy as a cultural ideal. Can we take them one at a time? Tell us about how you approach and study hierarchy first and maybe what does it have to do with traffic literally <laughs> okay you're taking things in the reverse order from the book that i tried to use traffic as a as an entry into the subject of hierarchy and then i use a chapter in which i present a more theoretical take on hierarchy overall so let me go straight to the theory the generalizations about hierarchy before talking about specific cases and let me say that i'm much inspired by the work of louis dumont who based on his research in india looked very carefully at the idea of hierarchy although burma's a very different kind of place than South Asia, and caste does not apply. The first important point to make about hierarchy is that when a great many people, certainly in the West, hear the word hierarchy, they think it only means inequality, a bad thing, and they have very negative associations to the word hierarchy. But the fact is that hierarchy is not simply inequality. I would describe it as a take on social relations predicated on the idea that individuals have different skills and traits and interests and capacities, 
because of the differences, they have an interest in entering into long-term relationships with other individuals. So my tagline on hierarchy is to say that it's a, a set of assumptions about social relations based on mutual interdependence through difference. Now, there'll be a difference of, along some axis, whether it's sex, male or female, or ethnic origin, or princely status versus commoner, or religious difference, any sort of difference. There'll be that axis of difference, which will encourage people to collaborate with each other. But, as Louis Dumont points out, whenever there's an, a difference, there will be a difference along that axis, whatever it is, but there will also be a difference in value. One pole will be accorded greater prestige than the other. Not necessarily greater power, but certainly greater prestige, greater value. Dumont says in an aside, it's too bad that that's the case, but it, he knows of no exceptions. So it's a relationship in which there is a superordinate and a subordinate, but of course it's purely contextual. So someone who is a superordinate in one relationship will be a subordinate in another relationship, and, and so it goes. So it's not as though hierarchy means people are frozen in a particular place in a rigid set of social relations. As a matter of fact, what one finds certainly in Roland's houses and societies is the possibility of competing, of trying to raise your station vis-a-vis -vis some others, although it is in no way humiliating to subordinate yourself to others to whom it is clearly in your interest to subordinate yourself. So subordination is not always humiliating, as Westerners and people thoroughly versed in Western ideas are often likely to infer, as long as you are subordinating yourself to the correct party. Let me try to clarify the nature of hierarchical thinking further by contrasting it to egalitarian thinking. In egalitarian thinking, your rights, your dignity, your status should all be unaffected by differences you might have with other members of your community. So my tagline for egalitarianism is, difference makes no difference. Of course, it does make a difference. It always makes a difference. But certainly, jurally and with respect to your dignity, it should make no difference. That's an enormous contrast with hierarchical thinking, where difference has to make a difference. It always makes a difference. And to say that it doesn't really makes no sense. That's my general take on hierarchy and egalitarianism. Supposing I was persuaded by your argument about hierarchy, but nevertheless, I said still egalitarianism sounds pretty good. Why wouldn't I prefer that mode of social relations to hierarchy? Why wouldn't I still press for it? The problem with egalitarianism is that, at least in the view of many Southeast Asians, if people who are similar are at best likely to have no interest in cooperating with each other, and at worst are likely actually to compete with each other, which can lead to all kinds of conflict. So for example, a contrast that I think is quite telling is relationships within a nuclear family. I grew up in the US, a middle-class family, and there were four of us kids, 
And the idea always was, of course, that there should be no favoritism under any circumstances. And it was always a rhetorically effective argument if, but mom, but dad, I would name one of my siblings, they got to do it, so why can't I? The idea that everybody should be treated exactly equal, regardless of whether it's a son or a daughter, whether they're older or younger, whatever else, that's pretty much standard ideology in American households. In Southeast Asian households, that's the last way you would want things to be. You want to establish a very clear ordering, that is to say a hierarchy among siblings, so that, for example, brothers will, rather than compete among each uh, among themselves, will instead recognize their different roles depending on whether they are younger or older, and therefore they will cooperate rather than compete with each other. In Indonesia, where I've also done fieldwork, as in Burma, the idea is that if, if you can truly persuade siblings of their very different statuses and roles, then they will enter into relationships based on mutual interdependence through difference. Not, of course, that anybody uses such desiccating social science terms, just that's the way things work out, and that's, I'm quite sure, the way people think they should work. All right, let's move on to autonomy as a cultural ideal. What's going on here, and how does this idea connect to the first one? Autonomy looks a lot like what we would think of as freedom. It means that you can determine your own actions and hold yourself in some way apart. And the reason I think that matters so much to people in Southeast Asia is because, in fact, everything, everyone's attention is always focused on their social relations, how they are entering into relationships with a great many different individuals from moment to moment. Since there is such intense attention to to those relationships and to the relative status of any two people engaged in a relationship, it is actually exhausting. That is to say, there is a felt desire to be able to exist apart from that set of engagements and be on your own, to be autonomous. I think the contrast that I have in mind is the fact that, yes, people in the West, of course, we we are also concerned about being able to decide our own actions and so on. But I don't think there's quite the same sense that every interaction, that your status is at risk, that your ability to determine your place is under such constant view. I think hierarchical relationships do foster that enormous focus on how you appear, how you how you conduct yourself, and how others perceive the way that you conduct yourself. It isn't as though everybody is permanently tense. Nevertheless, I think this concern encourages people at the same time to idealize a time when they can simply opt out. And autonomy means being able in some way to to be apart, 
So you juxtapose hierarchy with egalitarianism. What is the juxtaposition that you offer between autonomy and its other attachment? Why is attachment the term that you juxtapose with autonomy? Attachment is the way and the the degree to which you want to enter into relations with others. And the more intense the attachment is likely to be, then both the more important it becomes, but also the more it suggests you're becoming vulnerable to any kind of disruption to that relationship. Let me say that I'm, I'm very much impressed by and inspired by attachment theory, what has become a very important theory among practicing psychologists and mental health workers. And I play a bit on the happenstance that attachment theory has become so important for Western therapists, as I say, while at the same time, attachment is a very important term in Buddhist ideas, Buddhist doctrine. However, at the core of Buddhist teachings is the idea that that one should overcome, one should put aside, one should get beyond attachment. So there's a kind of ironic contradiction between what Westerners are so concerned with, which is how to enter into, how to form and how to maintain strong and resilient attachments and a Buddhist notion that because all things of this world are impermanent in nature, one must overcome one's attachments in order to protect yourself, I would say, although the Buddhist doctrine would instead be to say that in order to improve your karmic positioning and in order to proceed on your path toward the ultimate goal, which is nirvana. Before we get to our halfway point, could you now take some of these ideas with you into the monastery, uh, where it was, and what did you do there, and who were you especially close to? I should explain that, as is so often the case in, in anthropological fieldwork, where I was led eventually to focus my interests resulted from decisions that were completely out of my hands. Already when I first got to Burma for a long stay in 1987-88, the Burmese government gave me a choice. I could either live in a hotel or I could live in a monastery. So, of course, I chose monasteries. And I have lived in a number of different monasteries, but the longest stay I had and the most productive was living in a monastery in uh, Mandalay where I spoke to older monks, younger monks, novices, uh, lay people who often came to the monastery, so on and so forth. I had actually been struck in reading about mainland Southeast Asia that there was, of course, a great deal of talk about monks and monasteries and so on, but I, I hadn't found what I thought was a really thorough description of such a place. And it seemed to me that was a lack that I could try to make up for just by giving a pretty thorough description. It's quite a long chapter of the monastery where I stayed. When I went to speak to the abbot of the monastery to request permission to stay there, uh, he he is a taciturn, highly respected 
uh, scholar of polytexts. But easygoing and friendly is not his type. And when I first saw him, I felt quite uh, discouraged. And I thought he will never give me permission to stay here since I can't even get his attention long enough for him to really listen to anything I'm saying. So after a few minutes, I was, was taking my leave and he said, stay there. So I just sat there on the floor wondering what was going to happen next. And then this wonderfully jolly, friendly, expansive monk who was third in the missionary's hierarchy came in and started speaking to me in English, a language he doesn't really know, but he was willing to give it a try, was delighted to find that I, I do speak Burmese. And he immediately said, well, why don't we go to, to my hall and we'll talk there. And, and we had this wonderful conversation. And I was then eventually granted permission by the abbot to live in that monastery. And that expansive, friendly, jolly monk became my very best informant and somebody from whom I learned enormous amounts. So those are the circumstances in which I did my ethnography of the, of the monastery. To come at it, though, from a different angle, referring now back to the general remarks I was making about hierarchy and autonomy, what intrigued me was to find out how a large group of males navigate their social relations in an institution in which the overarching ideology is that one should get beyond one's attachments. So I was interested to see how friendships uh, developed in within the monastery, what sorts of relationships monks entered into not only with each other, but also with lay supporters. So I wanted to look at the institution for the social relations that obtained. I should add that I'm not a Buddhologist. In fact, for many years, I, I avoided the anthropology of religion because it was not something I really was intrigued by. I decided that a monastery would be an interesting place to, to do an ethnography of when it occurred to me that in my earlier work, which was working on shadow plays in Java, I had thought that, of course, a performance is a representation of social relations. And so I could ask of a performance questions about uh, the social relationships represented and how that might resonate with social relationships I saw in everyday life. I realized at a certain point, of course, I could take both religious doctrine and religious events, religious performances, as similar representations of social relations, or at least I could see in them metaphors for social relations, even though I might be diverging from what any participant would say about them. I could nevertheless read them as commentaries on social relations and see if they resonated with the social relations I was observing. Now, uh, some people will say that that's an act of great hubris on my part to insist that religious events, for example, are ways, among other things, of commenting on social relations. But I'm fairly dogmatic about that point. That is to say, I think that we humans are intensely social animals, and pretty much whatever we say and whatever we do in some way reflect and resonate with social relations. So that's my justification for what some people might say is an exaggerated 
emphasis upon social relationships and perhaps an, a kind of arrogance that people might accuse me of in reading everything as, along with other things, a commentary on social relations. Do you think the answers to some of the questions you asked about hierarchy and masculinity might have differed if you had not been in a monastery, presumably? And if so, how? <laughs> yes. It makes me, as an anthropologist, a little uneasy to admit this. But I have been much struck, the more I think about hierarchy, the more different kinds of situations I find it helps me understand. That is to say that I see great affinities between what I observe going on within the monastery with what I observe going on outside the monastery in uh, social relations in Mandalay. As a matter of fact, I also found great similarities between what I observed in Buddhist Burma and what I had earlier observed in Muslim Java and Hindu Balinese Bali. Now, of course, I would wish to insist, as every anthropologist would wish to insist, that there are local differences and we have to keep all of those differences in mind. Nevertheless, I am impressed with the ways in which notion of mutual interdependence through difference and uh, the value of subordinating yourself turns out to characterize an enormous number of relationships the world over. And as a matter of fact, I see a great continuity in political relationships and religious relationships. That is to say, relationships that are formulated both in institutional arrangements and also in uh, religious understandings, whereby the moves that people make in pursuit of their interests require them to uh, subordinate themselves and they do so not against their will and against their wishes but rather in fact quite willingly and even enthusiastically you look about you try to figure out where there are great concentrations of power and you try to enter into a relationship with such concentrations of power you will try to enter into exchange relations with such concentrations of power, whether they are objects or people, you will, of course, subordinate yourself. You, you are not yourself powerful, but if you can establish an exchange relation, then you will reap the benefits that come from entering into this relationship, which, of course, will probably mean you're providing service, you're providing loyalty, you're providing respect, in return, often for material benefits and or spiritual benefits of one sort or another. What, there, there are so many things I would like to ask you in response to that last <laughs> response, but <laughs> we'll pause okay. for a moment for a message from one of our sponsors. And when we return, so I have on the list so far, in addition to something I wanted to ask you about audience, quality, femininity, comparison, and how to write a book about hierarchy, masculinity, and gender in a way so as not to be misread. Yes. 
New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where today's guest is Ward Keeler, author of The Traffic in Hierarchy. Ward, before the break, we spoke at some length about hierarchy and masculinity, but really only touched briefly on the status of women in this hierarchy and the implications of the relationship between masculinity and autonomy for their status. At one point, you say that the status of women is concerned not so much with the question of equality as many people internationally may present it, but rather with whether or not they can enjoy a measure of autonomy. But if autonomy is gendered masculine, how is that possible for women in Burma? And relatedly, if that is indeed also the case, why not use the language of patriarchy? A couple of important recent books about the subject of gender, particularly the subject of women in Burma, have raised this whole issue. And I I wanted to respond to those scholars that wrote those books in a way that was was respectful while at the same time establishing my difference from them in that I think that those authors and and other authors working all over Asia, by failing to differentiate between egalitarianism and a dominant ideology in Burma, which I would call hierarchical, by failing to distinguish between the two, it becomes more difficult to truly grasp what the situation is on the ground and how women themselves in Burma might respond to the circumstances in which they find themselves. The problem is that if you wish to see women enjoying fully as much power and autonomy as men, then you will, of course, be dismayed by the way things uh, fall out in a place like Burma. But if you see that a hierarchical ideology says that people who are different have different skills, different privileges, different obligations, then the position of women as well as men in Burma makes more sense. That doesn't mean you have to approve of what goes on, but I do think you get a better grasp. So equality is not something that people particularly celebrate or expect. That doesn't mean that women simply bow their heads and go along with whatever men tell them to do. They will certainly argue for their, I would say, privilege rather than right, but they would argue for their privilege of taking charge of important elements of the household and expect men to allow them to do so. Burmese women are by no means uh, shrinking violets. They can certainly pursue their own interests, but they pursue their own interests within the context of these hierarchical understandings. One of the, the challenges, I think, in making these arguments is that there are choppy waters to navigate. 
And I'm impressed by what you do with great talent and, and sensitivity to try to make your positions as clear as possible and to be certain about the fact that you're not offering endorsements of some of the things you're observing. Exactly. And of course, that's very difficult. It really feels like trying to keep a number of balls in the air all at the same time. That is to say, I don't want to say that I am against efforts on the part of Burmese women and of outsiders in support of Burmese women's efforts to better their welfare, assure their access to education, their access to work outside the, the, the household and so on and so forth. Absolutely. I'm altogether in favor of all such movements. I just think at the same time, it is important for us to try to grasp how it is and why it is that people may have a completely different take on social relations. If nothing else, we need to understand why a great many Burmese women would say that they do indeed think that a man enjoys greater, there's a Burmese word for this, poem, which is a kind of spiritual authority that women have much less of. In fact, you really don't talk about such things uh, with reference to women. We may say that is very disadvantageous to women, and we think that this ideology needs to be looked at very critically. I agree. At the same time, if we don't grant that people can have a very different set of assumptions and values from our own, then we are once again saying that we are right and they are wrong, which, as you know, has a very long and ugly history in Western approaches to our others. So as I say, it's a delicate position that I'm trying to take up, but I do think it's very important that we really think seriously and take seriously the possibility that other people could think differently from ourselves and that the position they take makes a good deal of sense. Quite a number of times you have used the first person plural, so I feel like I need to ask you, although perhaps it's obvious to many listeners, but who is this we? Could you be more explicit about who you were writing to in particular and why they needed to get this message? It seems to me that there are a number of ideas that Western scholars and scholars from around the world who have become thoroughly versed in Western social science, Western philosophy, uh, Western discourse about politics, I think there are a certain number of ideas that we share. What I have called the egalitarian ideology is not something that only the West or people in the West have ever thought of. There are a number of societies around the world, including a number of small-scale societies in Southeast Asia, that have also considered the possibility of equality as the basis for social relations. So it's not as though only Westerners ever thought it up. What's, I think, unusual about the West is that starting, as far as I can tell, really in the maybe in the 17th century in England and elsewhere in Europe, is to have actually formulated these ideas in abstract terms rather than simply implementing them in place. I don't mean to say that, therefore, we Westerners are smarter than everybody else or that we think more clearly or whatever else. I'm not trying to make a a value judgment. But I would say at the same time, and that I hope that people will understand when I say we, I'm talking about people who have been 
persuaded, as I myself, I have to say, am persuaded by an egalitarian ideology as setting out a set of values and goals that I find preferable to alternatives. The other question was about my audience. Of course, I am addressing people who share my interest in Southeast Asia, that share my interest in anthropology, that share my interest in really in how we think about um, the social relations we enter into with other people. I don't really expect many devout Buddhists or even for that matter, many Southeast Asians to find my discussion either correct or interesting. Anthropology is a, is a rather odd take or approach to the world. I like to tell undergraduates that I think of anthropology as yoga for the mind. It's a way of bending your mind into all sorts of odd shapes that stretch you in interesting ways. But that's not something that appeals to that many people. And I can only hope that people that do find that an interesting way to uh, look at the world will find my arguments convincing. What about political scientists? If they can get past those opening pages where you remove politics from the equation, it seemed to me that at some points where you're talking about a system of hierarchical exchanges, political scientists may turn around and say, well, isn't this just a study of clientelistic relations? Would you accept that reading? I myself am certainly willing to say yes. What I see applying in these hierarchical relationships looks like patron-client relationships. But I think that the people that looked at all of that didn't, didn't consider in sufficient depth the set of ideas that justify and explain the kinds of relationships that, uh, that get set up and how there are advantages and disadvantages for all parties in entering into those relationships. I also think that if we look at what has happened politically in places like Indonesia, Thailand, and more recently Burma, we see how ideas about patrons and clients, usually conceived of as face to face, might actually help us look at much larger political events. What happens during elections? What elections look like? What people expect from politicians, and so on. We can generalize from the specifics of patron-client relationships on the ground to much larger movements. I myself have not tried to cover that ground, but I certainly hope that people that are attentive to politics in Burma will consider some of the arguments I'm making and find that at least it's worthwhile to consider them when looking at what goes on in Burmese politics today. Well, I certainly hope so as well. Relatedly, if I can draw out that term movements and a couple of the other points you were just making and perhaps in the hope of bringing politics back in a little bit at the end of the discussion, <laughs> but also to bring us back to egalitarianism, you do make a persuasive case out of your study of Burman Buddhism for hierarchy, but it struck me that the book doesn't make any reference historically or otherwise to the communist and leftist movements that swept Burma in the 20th century as elsewhere in colonized Southeast Asia. And 
even if the movements themselves are not still with us, those ideas nevertheless continue to influence social movements today. These were and, and still arguably are movements that are premised on ideas of egalitarianism, and they, they seem to strike quite a deep root in Burma. So how would you reconcile your arguments against egalitarianism and for hierarchy as an organizing principle with the historical fact of the left? Let me start with a disclaimer, which is to say that I know that communist movements have been very important in Burma. They were certainly very important in Indonesia quite a while back. I myself don't know very much about those movements, and I certainly should know more. I can speak maybe a little bit more authoritatively for what I know about, let's say, leftist ideas in Java and Bali, where I have to say, I never got the impression that uh, what I would think of as at the heart of, say, socialist ideas developed very far in people's thinking. There was certainly a notion that the rich and powerful should be attending to the needs of the masses of people much more carefully than they were. But I think that those expectations still tended to fall back on patron-client understandings. That is to say that it was the obligation on the part of the rich and powerful to cast down to their followers the benefits of their position. So again, it looks to me as though it was a, a refiguring of egalitarian ideas into understandings of, re, of redistribution instead of a radical leveling. The truly tragic example, the, the extreme example of this is, of course, Cambodia where a communist ideology brought about horrific violence. I'm drawing on the work of uh, Alexander Hinton here. It was actually, in many ways, a hierarchical ideology that persuaded people to align themselves, to make themselves loyal to the party hierarchy that destroyed people's lives in such numbers in the mid-70s in Cambodia. Well, you clearly benefit greatly from thinking as a Southeast Asianist comparatively between the work you've done in Indonesia, in Java especially, and through the conversations you've had with other Southeast Asianists. It really is one of the great promises still, I think, of Southeast Asian studies that there are such rich opportunities for us to do this kind of comparative work. Now, how do you think that your research earlier in Java assisted you in researching and thinking about research in Burma and what kind of advice would you have for people who are interested to work in Southeast Asian studies in a similar mode to yourself, that is, through these kinds of comparisons? You bring up actually a rather touchy subject because, as I'm sure you're aware, there are a fair number of people who say Southeast Asia doesn't exist. It's the imposition of Cold War ideology and Western imperialist powers and maybe above all the U.S. imposing this notion on a part of the world that has enormous diversity that is ignored uh, when we talk about Southeast Asia. I myself couldn't disagree more with that position. Of course, Southeast Asia does not have clear, firm boundaries, and there is indeed enormous diversity 
within the nine nations that are usually fought to make it up. On the other hand, I think anyone who spends serious amounts of time in different parts of Southeast Asia has to be struck by affinities and resonances across the region. I don't have an explanatory apparatus to say why this should be the case. I don't feel like as an anthropologist, I have to come up with one. I can just point to all sorts of uh, affinities, as I say, that I see across the different regions where I have lived for pretty extended periods of time. And to anyone who says that there's no such thing as Southeast Asia, I always want to say, when was the last time you were in South Asia? It seems to me that as soon as you leave Southeast Asia and go to someplace very different, such as South Asia, you immediately sense that there is there is a real contrast that makes that region of the world quite different from the region of the world we call Southeast Asia. I would say that I long believed that doing work in maritime Southeast Asia and mainland Southeast Asia would be a, a really interesting intellectual enterprise. But if you're asking my advice to scholars that would be interested in doing the same, I should say that professionally it was disastrous for me to shift areas mid-career, that it took me a very long time to develop the linguistic skills and to find time for extended fieldwork in Burma to complement my earlier research in Indonesia. If I had any sense, I would have stuck to Indonesia and written, forgive me, but what many anthropologists do, which is retreads of their earlier work in order to advance my career more steadily through the hierarchy in the bad sense of, an, of a university administration. However, I do think it, it has been, for me, quite fascinating to think about the affinities between different parts of Southeast Asia. And as a matter of fact, in this book, The Traffic and Hierarchy, I tried to restrain myself from making too many references to Indonesia because I thought I would just set off alarm bells if I did that too often. At this point, having published this book about Burma, having published other books about Indonesia, I have decided that I will indulge myself and start engaging in more direct comparisons between the different areas. And indeed, my current project is to look at shifting aesthetic preferences in Burma, Java, and Bali, where I will, of course, point to differences, but at the same time, be alert to what I see as real resonances in these different areas. What you've preempted our last conventional <laughs> question, which goes to precisely what you're working on now. Uh -huh. Are there any other projects that you have underway presently? The last time we spoke, you had mentioned one or two. How are they progressing? I'm not sure what I mentioned then, but I am still in the process of hoping to get published a long article about comparative queer Southeast Asian studies. It develops further ideas I set out in part of the last chapter of the book, The Traffic and Hierarchy, where I talk about Burmese trans women. I have had great difficulty getting that article published and I would say, this may be sour grapes, but I would say part of the reason I've had trouble is that people who look at queer issues in Southeast Asia don't want to hear about hierarchy. The project about shifting aesthetic preferences actually goes from the classical arts to the shape of classical arts today. The name of the project is The Aesthetics of Restraint in Tumultuous Times. The Aesthetics of Restraint being my term for the courtly arts 
of Burma, Java, and Bali. But I actually move in the end to performances that I also allude to in this book, uh, religious performances, which have become enormously popular, particularly in Java and Burma. That is to say, religious sermons, religious events where there will be an audience, and these will often be held at times that previously would have been occasion for other kinds of performing arts. So the shift in attention, by no means absolute, but an inclination to move from the classical arts through soap opera, television, mass-mediated sports to religion, it seems to me that that's really the overall shape of my project, and it seems to me an interesting progression. One that I admit I look at with a certain sorrow, because... I find the classical arts in Southeast Asia stunningly beautiful and fascinating, and I see them largely in eclipse, one that I look at with regret, but at the same time, of course, is fascinating to think about. Well, I'm very pleased that in giving that answer, you pointed not only to forthcoming work, but also to parts of the book that we weren't able to address in the discussion today. There is so much more there, and I would encourage readers that are seized by and interested in these questions of equality and egalitarianism, and there are others, to take a look at the traffic and hierarchy and award killer. I thank you very much again for coming on to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies again to discuss the book. Thank you so much for engaging with the book so closely and so carefully, and it's really been a pleasure to talk with you about it. Likewise. And thank you to everyone for listening. And if you did enjoy this episode, then you could also listen to Ward again talking about a new book that he translated by Jean Rosenberg, the book being The Immortals. And you can learn more about uh, his uh, preliminary forays and research in Burma by listening to that interview. We'll put a link to that episode on the website with this recording, where you can find thousands more interviews free of charge, and you can sign up, as I have done to our channel and a whole lot of others. One that I've enjoyed in recent times is another in the people and places category, new books in Eastern European studies. But if that's not to your taste, I'm sure you'll find something that is, and look forward to you joining me or my co-host, Patrick Jory, talking next month with another author of a new book in Southeast Asian studies. Monkey! Hey, thank God, see you at the tin of the boat. Monkey! Hey, thank God, see you at the tin of the boat.